0: Hello and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from ACF Investment Bank's Thomas Day about helping Simon Cowell's Psycho Entertainment raise $125 million and the sale of the Lord of the Rings trilogy for even more. Former Channel 4 exec Kelly Webb Lamb on her new UK indie Mothership Productions and why the privatisation of her former employer would be a bad idea and Triascope's Elsie Crowley on the hybrid animation studio's Evolution and working with Game of Thrones' George R.R. R. Martin. In September, Psycho Entertainment raised $125 million to create an acquisition fund intended to expand its global reach. The innovative deal, engineered by ACF Investment Bank, was achieved by the securitization of the Got Talent franchise, a model used in the music industry but not previously applied to television. Earlier in the year, ACF also worked on a deal that saw Sweden's Embracer Group acquire the rights to produce motion pictures, video games, board games, merchandising, theme parks and more relating to the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. ACF Chief Executive Thomas Day spoke to Jordan Pinto about how these complex deals came to be, why securitisation will become more common in TV and why high-profile M&A activity within the industry will increasingly be focused outside of the US and UK. This interview was recorded prior to Fremantle last week acquiring a majority stake in London-based factual indie 72 films which ACF also advised on.
1: So let's start with the deal that saw Simon Cowell's Psycho raise um, $125 million to fund international growth through a mix of acquisitions and organic growth. Um, the deal is somewhat rare and u- unique as it includes the securitization of Psycho's ownership of the Got Talent intellectual property, uh, which comprises, and uh, I'm kind of re- reading, the, reading these out here, but um, production margins and, and fees, digital income, uh, franchise and original content sales, and sponsorship income too. Um, securitization, it's not a term that we're accustomed necessarily to hearing in the context of the, the content or the TV content business as, as often. Um, so maybe that would be a, a place to start. Um, h- how did that deal come together? And then maybe for the, for the un- uninitiated like myself, <laughs> um, a, a securitization deal, w- what does that look like in the context of t- television?
2: Sure, Jordan. Basically, there have been a number of high-profile deals that have been done in the music space where they have come in and they've looked at the royalty income or the right income from music that's streaming on the platforms and they've actually said that this is an annuity income which is very akin to like a mortgage or a bank product so they've actually been doing deals in that space now and we've seen a number of prolific deals being announced where every single catalogue has been sold and obviously you and I work in the content space And I saw the patterns and the trends in the content space and said that I thought we could do something very similar in this space. Um, And I know that a bunch of people have always been interested in working with Simon and Psycho, and I know that they've always been looking at ways of doing deals with him. But when we came in, we looked at it and we thought we could actually raise him a war chest of money to go and do the expansion that he wishes to do and he still retains the rights and the ownership. So this is something that's not only appealing here, but is going to be appealing to holders of IP, um, where they're legacy estates, where grandpa or grandma created this great thing, and they don't want to sell the IP, but they'd like to get access to the money early. Um, So I went to Simon and Psycho and said, I thought we could do this, and they were trusting enough to say, let's do it. It hadn't been done before, and certainly not done in this way. Um, So what we did was we went out and spoke to a bunch of banks, and we showed them the income streams, and we showed them the visibility of the income streams. And what we found is that when you look at the overall business with the growth and the new formats, that obviously creates an element of risk and uncertainty. But when you look at an established franchise like Got Talent, you can actually show with great predictability what's going to come in the future. So that starts being a lot more like a music income stream because you know, Britain's Got Talent is a four or five year contract, America's Got Talent is a shorter period contract, but then they also seek to renew his talent deals for a longer time frame. So you can look at both of those franchises and say with an absolute certainty that they're going to be around for five years if not 10 plus years. So in that scenario, that income stream starts looking very solid. Now, the thing that took time is that people were seeing that there were other income streams there as well. Original format sales, original content, then there was like even the production margin. And that's where people started saying that's moving away from a royalty income and into a trading income. So what we did to give people confidence on that is we went and got a credit rating. And a credit rating basically looks at an income stream and says whether it is investment-grade. And when something is investment-grade, it's like a diligence thing that gives it a certain level of comfort, mainly for pension companies and others who can then invest their monies. And that was the step that then gave people confidence to come in and actually invest in this and to lend us the money. The thing it was very unique and it was very different, Um, but now that we have a precedent case, I think that we could actually do this with more companies, and it will just be a new and interesting way for people to potentially raise finance that they haven't considered before. Mm
1: -hmm. And yeah, you you've said it there, but you expect, I I think. Do you think this will this deal will kind of pique the interest of uh, of others who, and I'm not saying they would have a similar franchise necessarily as as Got Talent, but people that have an asset that, um, that they think could be
2: you know, securitized in, in a similar way? 100%. I mean, um, banks, and I don't think the banks would mind me saying this, the banks don't always, because banks make lower returns on their capital deployed, they are very risk adverse. They have to be risk adverse, because they can't make you know, big mistakes. Um, equity, on the other hand, is much more risk capital. So banks are quite resistant to doing something for the first time. But once you have a precedent, like in the law, work, the world of law, it absolutely opens the floodgate. Because they can go back to their credit committee and say, Naveen actually supplied this financing. They're a serious house. They know what they're doing. Therefore, we should do these types of deals in future. So not only will it, will it open up new sources of finance, but I think it will make people who have got these assets think, Instead of me going to get an expensive uh, equity provider or someone else coming in, why don't we do this instead? Um, And just for for context, had you
1: ever worked with Psycho before on on anything, or was this the first time? This was the first time. Uh, Another deal that you worked on over the summer um, saw Swedish video game and media company Embracer Group, um, which sits under the parent company Free Mode, um, acquire the IP and rights to uh, Tolkien's uh, fantasy literary works The Lord of the Rings, um, with that deal, um, Embracer um, will own the rights to produce motion pictures, video games, board games, merchandising, theme parks, and stage productions relating to the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. Um, that deal is obviously a, a, an enormous one as well and a, one that I'm sure took a, a long time to, to structure. Um, yes, how, did you, you know, how, how, how long did that deal take and how did you arrive at a place that, um, that everyone was, was happy with, um, with all, all the terms?
2: So I think back to back it was probably about 18 months um, and we spent the first six months really creating a solid set of financial information because this company had many income streams coming in from different sources and they had their long-term accountants who were very good at making sure the money came in but not necessarily presenting it as an investable case. So we worked with their accountants and with their, their their financial people to help create a model. And then Lord of the Rings, if you think about it, you know, the last film, The Hobbit, was released in 2013. It was a franchise that had created significant value, but hadn't had a real boost in terms of what they were doing for a significant period. So again, we worked with the existing management to create a financial model that went forward and actually looked at what could this asset be and it was something similar we did with the um, Paddington franchise which again we sold to Studio Canal and we ended up again working off the back of a financial model So the first thing I wanted was to be able to say to people this is an asset that can generate this kind of money in this type of situation Um, and that took time and that always takes time and patience and you've got to be prepared to do it Um, we then went to market and to say the reaction was strong would be an understatement. We had every single player who you'd wish to have at the table, you know, from the very top of the company down, you know, with an absolute checkbook and an absolute interest in acquiring what was termed and is termed one of sort of four or five global IPs left on the planet. Um, so for us personally, I mean, it was very gratifying and rewarding. and. You know for our clients it was a great experience to actually get that level of interest Um, so we then took the asset out into the market and this is an asset that you know has granted licenses and has you know had a long and kind of interesting um, sort of time in the market Um, so as we spoke to buyers and buyers focused on different parts of the business it started being um, obvious, which players would be, you know, the final players, and which players couldn't match the interest of, 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 you know, the kind of stronger players in the pack. Um, and one, one of the things that's just, you know, fascinating to me is when we talk about intellectual property and we talk about, you know, the ring of monetization in the different circles that surround intellectual property. To have a gaming company come in and look at I think it's the MMORPG rights and to look at what they can do with this asset and to have them winning the asset when they're going up against some of the biggest players in the marketplace. It shows you the strength of each of these circles and I think for us where we're predominantly focused on TV and film and distribution, it starts opening the you know your eyes to look at these other players who are coming in. Um.
1: Do you think we will start to see more gaming companies moving into into the content
2: space? A hundred percent, We had a, a bunch of gaming companies that came to the table to look at this. Mm. They gave as strong a response as the studios and the streamers. It's been really interesting. Would you, have, prior to you beginning the process, would you
1: have expected to see as many gaming companies? Like, Is that kind of in line with what you thought might happen, or were you surprised?
2: I have to say yes, so that I sound professional and that I knew exactly what was going to happen at every point. But I will say I was also surprised. I mean, it was, it was, it was the level and magnitude of the interest and the value of the bids that they were able to write was staggering. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: j- just for context as well, um, Embracer would have, they would have all the rights, or the majority of the rights, Lord of the Rings minus the the TV rights that Amazon
2: um, has for their for their um, their long form series now. That's correct. So we had the rights to everything, barring some of the long long series TV rights. So I think seven or eight episodes or longer was something that we didn't own, but we did own some TV rights in the one to four episode space and. There's even a discussion about the sort of five to seven, but everything else we had—the film, TV, merchandising, live events, theme parks—they um, have and had granted a license to Warner Brother to produce films, but we still own the film rights. So they just have the license. Obviously, you can't tell
1: us about deals that are in the works at the moment, um, but but as you've said, some of these deals take a, a long time to come to fruition, so you you will know two years in advance or eighteen months in advance what kind of deals uh, are happening and where the market is moving. Um, can, you, can you give us a sense broadly of, of, of how you see the market um, without obviously breaking confidentiality about some of the deals that you're working on?
2: Sure. Um, there are a lot of economic clouds around us at the moment and you know we're seeing words like inflation, we're seeing words like recession, we're seeing the stock market plummet 30%. You know, there is a lot of bad news out there. But in our space, we're seeing this huge injection of cash, 260 billion coming in from the streaming platforms through a very thin economic platform that, that can distribute very efficiently. And as a result, that is a huge injection of cash that's come into our space. So our clients are doubling in size. Our clients are, you know, in very good health. And as a result, private equity has poured into the space behind some of the the platform builders and some of the roll-up people. And so we're seeing all of the big names interested in in content, and as a result, the multiples are going up, Mm -hmm. the quality of the deals are going up, and there is no shortage of buyers. So when we sit down and run a process, we will now have a big group of private equity who are bidders, we will have a bunch of people backed by private equity who are doing roll-ups, and we will have studios and platforms. And everyone is looking for people who can service the streaming platforms with original content. Um, so we do have something like six or eight deals that are trundling forward. You know what I'd say to you is, you know, premium is still a you know a key word. But what's also interesting is I would say, you know, non UK US territories are coming into focus as well. So we'll be announcing deals in other territories than that which is important because people often focus on those two territories only um, and then the third space which I'm expecting to see is there's going to be a move out of premium into other genres and people are going to start off trying to fill their pipeline with things like shiny floor and light entertainment. Um, they're going to be more interested in kind of m- moving into you know, documentary reality. So I think we're going to see other genres starting to play a part in these deals. Yeah. Um, but the deal quality and the deal metrics are the healthiest we've seen, I mean, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of the, the volume of deals and that you're seeing, do, do you feel like the, the M&A market is,
1: like, is it a busy one at the moment? Or is this comparable to what it was 12 months ago or 18 months ago?
2: Yes. I mean, the market is busier than we've seen previously. And I expect the volumes of deals to be announced to be higher than we've seen before. What's interesting is we don't have um, like a 100 targets. Um, but, you know, so it's not like there's a volume of companies out there that are selling. But what we're seeing is the companies that do want to sell get snapped up. Mm-hmm. Um, you were mentioning um, kind of shiny floor and light
1: entertainment shows. Um, could you just break that down a bit in terms of what you think we'll see in the market? Are you talking about pr- private equity companies looking to to buy up some of the the companies that are more um, more associated with kind of shiny floor and lighter entertainment, or am I am I
2: missing the, the no, point? there? no, you you you're, you're spot on. What's happening is the streaming platforms need to keep the subscribers engaged. There are too many platforms and there's too many options. And the first thing subscribers do is go through your backlog of shows. So they watch all the things they want to watch. For me personally, I signed up Paramount Plus recently. I think it was Picard. I think it was The Offer. I think I went through three or four big shows that I had wanted to watch. Um, and then after that, I say, what's, what's now? And so now you're sitting with a subscription with nothing new. So the, the, the demand and the requirement for these streaming platforms to keep the subscribers engaged is, is very necessary and there's a cost implication and a timing implication and and sitting in the premium space is very expensive and very time consuming. So they need a longer run, um, cheaper, quicker product that can keep people engaged and that's going to be shiny floor and light entertainment. Um, It has to be. So as a result, people will then move to that space and actually be looking to make acquisitions in that space, so mm-hmm. I see it being something that's going to be of more interest. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating what you were
1: saying about um, more interest in international companies outside of the US and the UK, are you able to say what kind of territories you're seeing, Like, are, we thinking, are you talking about Asia or other parts of Europe?
2: Well I, I think everyone has seen the success of foreign content and I think it's caused by binge watching, I think when people binge watch content they see the formula behind the content and they get a little bit bored. So, you know, 10 Hollywood blockbuster, you know, scripted shows, drama, you know, will start feeling the same because they put the same element into each of them. And when you binge watch, it's really apparent what you're watching. And I think the consumer eventually gets bored. I think what, what some of the international producers did, which was really smart, like Narcos, you know, was introduce us to 50% Spanish, 50% English content. And teach us to read subtitles, and then that reached a pinnacle with Squid Games, mm-hmm. which just you know wowed everyone. And 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 it, what what was it about it that wowed everyone? And I think it's because the consumer could not see the um, the formula behind the show and didn't know what was going to happen. It was just startling, like mm-hmm. this. Show where people die, you know, and just the acting was very different to what we were used to, and all of that fed into making us really excited about the show. So, I think that that has opened the door to non English speaking content and has made people a lot more accepting of of subtitles. So, that then opens the door to which territories, and Spain is an obvious territory um, because you know, Italy, Spain, France, you know, they're three territories where I expect to see. Content, but also South America. So there's a lot of interesting things happening in in Colombia. You know, a lot of interesting things happening in Mexico. So I think we're going to see a lot more people being interested in buying in those territories. Whereas previously they would that would have been a B or a C tier Mm -hmm. acquisition. I think now we're going to see a lot more. Mm -hmm. Just on
1: the on the economic front, you know, we're seeing you know pretty grim forecasts for the for the next twelve months. Do you see? Do you see the content uh, industry continuing to be maybe somewhat insulated from that and not being too affected by some of the economic hardships that seem to be taking place across the industry? Or will that have a big impact on the
2: decision-making of of the companies in the space? Well, I think it's it's a fact that debt has got more expensive. Um, So that is one of the important components when you're doing a roll-up you have to factor in the price of debt. Um, Having said that, the price of debt increase versus the amount of growth Mm -hmm. in these target companies is more than offset. Mm -hmm. So I think although it might slightly affect the pricing on deals, I don't expect it to kill the interest. And there just isn't a lot of other areas where people can invest at the moment with confidence, whereas this sector is just ruddy with health. And it's for the reasons we said earlier that it's to do with this huge injection of cash, so I think it, it, there is an impact, um, and you know people do are going to tighten their belts when they see the dark clouds rolling towards us. But I hope that we've minimised the impact of advertising-led income, and we're now looking more at subscription um, content, and so therefore we will be insulated because. It's never been healthier. Mm-hmm. Probably the thing I would comment on is is really where I lay out ACF's stall and where I see things. You know, I think before we were looking very much at growing these companies and selling these companies, and that was quite, you know, uh, you know, rinse and repeat, do that again and again, and it's fine, it's a great thing. But I think with the psycho deal, and I think with the Lord of the Rings deal, we're actually going to start seeing, and also with the Bear Grylls deal, where we did the deal with Banerjee, I think we're going to continue to see other aspects of the content cycle coming into focus and as these companies become bigger and more sophisticated there'll be more sophisticated options to do things with them so i know banaget you know reversed into a spac so those types of things only happen when the industry matures and gets bigger and i think that's where we are so for the next 10 years my prediction is that the industry is coming of age. This is our teenager who's now become an adult. And I think that's going to allow more sophistication and a lot more interesting sort of financial plays that can actually help the industry grow. Um, so that, that's what I'm going to be. I mean, these are two deals that we should, we've just announced, but I'm hoping to do more stuff in that safe space and you know, continue to evolve the space.
0: Former Channel 4 Deputy Director of Programs and Head of Popular Factual Kelly Webb Lamb set up Mothership Productions in August, a new UK-based indie focusing on global formats and unscripted programming. The company counts fellow Channel 4 alumni Charlotte Desai and Gillie Greenslade among its senior team, as well as ex-Jamie Oliver Productions exec Gudrun Clare and now Donna Gomes from BBC Studios. Shortly after launch, Mothership announced that BBC Studios had taken a 25% stake in the business and will invest in the startup slate, receiving first look global distribution and format rights to selected projects in return. Prior to Channel 4, Weblam was managing director of Shine TV and director of Factual at Princess Productions, counting titles including The Apprentice, Hunted and The Great British Bake Off among her credits. She spoke to Clive Whittingham about her ambitions for the new company and the trends she sees currently shaping the unscripted space.
3: So I'm Kelly Weblam and I am the founder and CEO of Mothership Productions. Um, we launched in August this year um, so very new and yeah we're just getting going.
4: Getting going. Why now? Obviously people know you from from Channel 4 and a big, big production uh, career before that. Why go back into production with Mothership at this point?
3: To be honest it's really a person it was a personal decision, because I guess I had got to a point where I knew that I didn't want a big corporate job any longer. I'd kind of done that for a long time, absolutely love being at Channel 4, total privilege to be there. But I'd kind of got to the point where I felt like I was a really long way away from programmes and wanted to get back to the reasons why I'd gone into the industry in the first place. And I guess just felt like, do you know what? I have to be able to do this. I've been doing this for a really long time. I know what I'm doing I've run a big indie before. I've had the privilege of working at the very top of a broadcaster for five years. It felt like the right time for me. And to be honest, it was a really easy decision for me. It was very clear that that was the right thing to do. And I think I also knew from my time at Channel 4, and I feel very strongly about this, that there's room in the market for a broad, unscripted company that delivers, innov- innovates, creates and delivers ideas of scale across the unscripted genres. So I guess one of the advantages of having been in my role at Channel Four for as long as I was was to be able to kind of see what was out there. So yeah, felt like the right time uh, for me personally, and then it was just about getting the right team with me to really be able to launch.
4: What do uh, BBC Studios, because uh, very soon after launch, it was confirmed that BBC Studios are, are back in the company. What do they bring to the table for you? Why did you go in with with them? rather than somebody else or rather than sort of indie indie?
3: Um, well I always knew that I was going to need an investment partner because my ambition for mothership is to be able to start at scale and to grow aggressively so I knew that I didn't want to do kind of me and a researcher sat here in my front room and get into a sort of development production cycle that wasn't what I wanted to do my I'm really really ambitious I want us to be a big player in the market and I want us to be a big player in the market pretty quickly. I guess that's sort of what I know how to do best and obviously that's not possible without some level of investment so it was always part of the plan to find the right investment partner and BBC Studios uh, just became very quickly the right choice for us for all kinds of reasons to do with who they are what they bring what they offer us the sort of good match between who we are and who they are um I was at the BBC I was a BBC girl for quite a long time and part of uh, the attraction of the BBC for me is about that to be honest is about the fact that if I'm going to have a partner it has to feel right and I think one of the things that was really important for me about making this decision to set up mothership was about really being able to be completely myself. And to be able to launch the company in a way that made sense for who I am. Uh, And I think it's one of the things that I learned from watching the Masters at Work, to be honest, in my time at Channel 4, is that those producers who are really, really successful are totally themselves. And what they do, the shows they make, how they work as businesses just makes sense. So there were lots of reasons. BBC obviously has amazing distribution, but it wasn't just about that. It was about who they are, who the team are, and the deal that they gave us. So yeah, it was a combination of factors.
4: What sort of shows do you want to produce with Mothership? Is there something that you would count as like a quintessential Kelly Webland show? I mean, we hit, I hear ambition coming through, but is there is there a type of show that, that you want to be known for and produce with this company?
3: Yeah, I think... If you look not just at me, but at Charlotte and Gilly as well, and the kind of shows that we've been involved in over the decades, you know, the three of us have, over the last 10, 20 years, kind of created, sold, produced, commissioned some really big shows across the genre. So everything from like Jilly was series editor of Hospital and BBC Two, so from the kind of the End Charlotte created the doghouse, all the way through to we were all together on the Apprentice in the Katie Hopkins era, and you know I launched The Island and Hunted when I was running Shine. I was there when we brought Bake Off from BBC to Channel Four, and spent my first year at Channel Four really making sure that landed properly. Um, Julie and I both did the Circle together. I've done got to dance on Sky Big Entertainment, so big shows across the genres are what we're aiming to do with a real focus on the global market. So we are looking to focus on formats that can travel. Tone is really important to us. So I think that a mothership show will be warm and witty but also always intelligent so we want to innovate we want to do things at scale but we are interrogators so it is really really important to me that our shows are really good that they're really well thought through that they make sense that the the line the narrative line all of the three of us come from a factual documentary background and although I've spent a lot of time doing entertainment reality factual entertainment, that narrative rigor is really important to our show. So I would say warm, witty, innovative, intelligent, of scale.
4: When I hear scale and ambition, that often these days means streamer perhaps that's a lazy um a lazy sort of stereotype and assumption that's growing up that as soon as you hear ambition you think well it's going to be big budget it's going to need a streamer but the streamers of all the genres format seems to be the one that they have struggled to crack the least certainly compared to the inroads they've made in drama and, and kids and factual so are you aiming to square that circle formats for streamers and what do they look like or or is there still that space to do big ambitious stuff in linear which all of the shows apart from the circle, or which was with Netflix you mentioned there were linear shows
3: yeah I mean when I was last in production there were no streamers so the shows that I've made as a producer and as a seller were for linear or for sky there were no streamers I think I wouldn't agree that you can't be ambitious on the PSVs I think Certainly know from coming from Channel 4 that a massive part of my role was to find really good big shows. And the thing that I think is great about the PSBs is that they are prepared to take creative risks. I don't think ambition has to mean streamer I think it can mean streamer and certainly you know we streamers are absolutely I want the streamers to be a big part of what we do but I don't think it has to mean that and I think that the PSBs have some of the best and brightest uh, creators uh, there as their uh, commissioning editors and the real genuine ambition to innovate and to try things and to take risks is really important to me because that that's the stuff that makes me excited so I would say our ambition includes the, the the full landscape obviously you're right about budgets so there's no getting away from that I think with the streamers um, certainly Netflix has had a lot of success with formats and definitely with reality right it's a massive hits in reality and that to me is really important space for us but also if you think about Queer Eye and Nailed It and Is It Cake I mean there's there's a lot of great great shows that I think in unscripted that aren't documentary and Amazon have also done those things and are wanting to do them all so I think there's maybe not on Disney yet There's still a bit more premium factual but I think those things will come to the other to the other streamers I guess Apple probably less important for us because we're not going to do natural history we're certainly not looking at scripted at the moment so but I do I think there is room on streamers I also think they want to to do big formats. What I really admire, particularly about Netflix, is that I think they have the ability to take an idea that sort of sits in the edges a little bit. And make it broad. So they'll take, like, if you think about how to build a sex ring, for example, that feels to me like an old Channel 4 show. But it's something that maybe Channel 4 might be nervous about doing at the moment, because to them it might feel niche. Whereas Netflix can take something like that, that feels quirky and slightly in the edges, and make it broad And that's really appealing to me. I think they do that with quite a lot of their shows really successfully. So for me, the thing that's really exciting about this time compared with when I was last in production is that I feel like the landscape is just full of possibility And that's why I wanted to do this, you know, was to feel that the opportunity and the possibility is there and the breadth of, you know, there's new buyers popping up left, right and centre all the time. And again, that's really, for me, that just feels really exciting.
4: You've sat on both sides of the desk now. Are there pitfalls, traps, mistakes that producers made when pitching that you're, (laughs) now you've sat on the buyer's side of the desk and you've done, well, that didn't work for me. Is there anything, like that that you sort of picked up that that you're bringing back
3: to be honest the thing that's really illuminating when you for me because I'd been at shine for well shine and princess together I think probably five or six years when I went to channel four is that you then suddenly see how everybody does it. So you have this incredible experience of seeing how everybody does it, because it's easy when you're running an indie to just think everybody does it like you. And then you go to a broadcast and you realise that's not true at all. So there were lots of things where I thought, oh, OK, that's really interesting. I wouldn't say with pitfalls I would go back to what I said earlier really which is I think this really successful producers are the ones who know who they are and who, what their strengths are and what they bring and what's different about who they are and what they bring to other people and kind of don't come in thinking everybody's doing this so I've got to do this they think this is who I am or we are and this is what we can do well and that feels really clear to me I think sometimes people run after a trend or a form because everybody else is doing it. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do. I guess the other thing I would say is I have learned how important it is to look at the big picture and to be brave enough to say no and to think about what the impact of your decisions are on the kind of future of your business and to make sure that you're doing deals that are going to be good for you. And I think that's really hard when you're in small but really important and again when you kind of have the privilege as I did to kind of watch everybody do it you realize that you realize how important that is and so for me being as confident commercially as we are creatively and as ambitious commercially as we are creatively is really important I think those two things have to go together
4: particularly now given we're in a, a, a perpetual state of economic crisis it seems in in this country it's a it's a brave time to be launching a company BBC Studios or, or no BBC Studios what are the challenges facing you in that regard and the industry in general? Presumably the advertising advertising is always the first thing that gets hit in a a time of economic crisis and that feeds into programming budgets, but for your company and for the industry in general, what do you see as the sort of key challenges this week, because it'll be different by next week, I'm sure.
3: I mean, I think there's sort of two big, it seems to me there's two big issues that the industry is facing, right? One is about recession. And as you say, buyers' budgets getting smaller for whatever reason, whether that's because it's ad revenue getting smaller or whether it's because people are cancelling subscriptions and subscription services have less money, That's obviously a problem for the industry as a whole. There's less money in the industry. And then I think you have the twin issue of the cost of living, which pushes up the cost of making telly and means that people who you employ, their money doesn't go, the money that you pay them goes not as far I think those are both really real problems. And as you say, this week, who knows what's going to happen? Um, My feeling about that as a CEO of a new company is what can you do except get on and come up with the best ideas you possibly can and get them sold and get them produced? There's sort of, in a sense, I'm not, well, I'm not going to spend my time worrying about those things because that doesn't help us in any way I think we've all just got to work better and smarter to get ourselves through it I do think that it will be a challenge for the broadcasters and the platforms when it cut if, if things really get bad because expecting producers to carry the can for you know the budgets going up is just not going to be possible certainly not possible if you're sitting where I'm sitting um, <laughs> and you're a small new producer you know that's going to be a problem but I think a similar thing happened when COVID hit didn't it that it felt like here's this big challenge to the industry and actually the industry got through it pretty well obviously there were big bumps in the road but we're lucky that we're in an industry that people care about and people will always want to watch content so I think if you're confident in your ability to come up with shows and make them well, you have to just carry on with that confidence.
4: Reboots were a trend this year anyway in the UK industry. I mean, we can run through the channels and who's rebooting what and Big Brother's back and Gladiators back and and all of the, and all of that. But that was a trend anyway. It's often a trend in times of economic crisis because channels like a a, a safer a safer bet in quotation marks. Are you one of these people that sees that as damaging to creativity and makes it harder for new production companies to get fresh ideas through? Or do you see yourself as a, a sort of safe pair of hands that somebody might bring a reboot to and you'll end up rebooting shows yourself? Where are you on, on that?
3: I mean, I, I've obviously been at a broadcaster for years. So I when I think about reboots, I really understand why broadcasters go there. As you say, they're familiar and we know that audiences like familiar. So I don't hold it against broadcasters for making those decisions. I also don't hold it against audiences for wanting to watch them. I think, you know, I completely understand that. Uh, I feel excited about some of those reboots as a viewer. So I'm pretty pragmatic about it. As a producer, reboots are not top of my priority list. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I really like creating new shows. But I'm also not close to it at all. I don't have, uh, don't stand on moral high ground about reboots in any way. I think it's not what we're set up to do. It's not my number one priority, but I would be completely open to it as a producer, and I certainly don't hold it against anybody that they're happening.
4: Mm. I, it's just I, I always wonder, Channel 4, your former employer, rebooting Changing Rooms, BBC, bringing back Gladiators, which used to be on ITV. I mean, how you're going to give me the pragmatic answer, right? I suspect, but how does that fit with a sort of public service remit of sort of being risky and taking
3: chances? Well, it's all a balance, isn't it? I mean, I think the reality is you've got those PSBs, they've got a big job to do. And actually part of that job is about making sure that audiences have content that they really want to watch and that brings in eyeballs that they can then turn to other new shows. So I don't have a problem with that. I also think that a lot of those big shows I <laughs> Are the places where you know if you think about the Channel Four remit, it's actually on Bake Off, for example, or if you know that that it's on those big shows that you can do really important things with casting, that you can tell stories that are about diversity, that are you know feeding into debates, and and some of those big reboots that you mentioned give the opportunity to do that. So that all the PSBs have their reasons for doing those shows and actually innovation and creativity is obviously a really important part of all of the PSBs and what they're there for if all they were doing was reboots it would be a problem but that's not what they're doing at all they're each doing one right maybe two I sort of think fair enough I I, I don't have a problem with that I think the PSBs are so important that they are solid and successful and that they continue that actually if bringing back some old much loved shows helps that to happen I don't have a problem with
4: that. I'm obviously going to have to ask you about Channel 4 privatisation uh, because that's where you've just come from it would be remiss of me not to ask it I'd be very surprised if you're going to sit there and tell me that you were secretly in favour of it all along I mean that would that would take the interview off in a, in a very different direction Um you're not going to do that are you? I'm <laughs> not going to do that. <laughs> So um, <laughs> let's, let's frame it slightly <laughs> differently then um, why specifically do you personally think it, it would have been would be a bad thing and damaging and secondly do you actually think it's realistically going to go ahead now the government has obviously changed and seem to be more focused on driving my mortgage up to a point that I can't afford it at the moment than than privatizing channel 4 so do you think it's going to happen and specifically because I personally haven't heard your thoughts on it what what
3: specifics make it a, a bad idea for
4: someone that worked there
3: so do i think it's going to happen i don't know certainly the noises are seem less likely than they did a while ago but who knows i feel like that can change you know until we actually know we don't know as a sitting as i do now as a ceo of an indie of a qualifying indie it's really important for the plurality of what we can do and what other new producers into the market can do that channel 4 is healthy and exists as it does and i know from being there that the kind of open door policy of Channel 4, i.e., if you want a meeting with a Channel 4 commissioner, you will get one. What, whoever you are as a producer, the door is open. It might take a while, but you will get a meeting. And that is a really, really important part of what the channel is and what the channel does for the industry. You know, I don't think we have any guarantees that that will continue under privatization. And so I think the impact on the industry and the plurality of the industry and the ability for the industry to have different kinds of producers, and which is so important to the stories that are told on our screens, feels to me like a really, really important thing to protect. So with my producer's hat on, I think that Channel 4 is such an important role in the industry as it that protecting that role, both for the economic health of the industry, but also really importantly for the kind of stories that we get on screen. And with the channel perspective, I don't know if people think enough about that bit of what the channel does that the fact that the door is open and that that is really carefully protected the numbers of indies that the channel works with and not even because works with doesn't mean meets so that's just a really important service that the channel provides to the industry and ultimately to the audience And the remit, you know, I'm a massive believer in the remit. I think the remit is really important. I think it does allow the channel to take risks. I think it does allow the channel to tell stories and to reach communities and to do big, bold things that aren't necessarily commercially driven. And it would be really a sad day if those things were lost.
4: We have a strand at C21 called Three Year Plan that we're thinking of renaming or rebranding Three Week Plan, um, the the way things are at the moment. But as best you can, what is success for you guys three years down the line, three years from launch? Where do you want Mothership to, to be three years from now?
3: To be honest, my aims are really simple. I'm really ambitious. Like I said, I want us to grow aggressively and get to a place where we are a big player in the market. But ultimately, I'm doing this because I want to make great telly and tell really good stories. And I want to work with brilliant people, both on screen and off screen. And I think that's really important. The three things that are really important to me that I think that the success of Mothership are about being really creatively driven, really commercially driven, but also culture and actually the culture of what we do, who works with us, what we're about, what we stand for, how we work. And I mean that both in terms of talent, but also in terms of teams, really important to me. So if we are making some great shows, winning some awards, having fun and working with brilliant people, I will be really happy.
0: Three-year-old Trioscope is behind projects such as Netflix's war drama The Liberator and has two primary areas of focus, its content studio and recently launched platform to license its proprietary tech to third-party content creators. The company recently unveiled a partnership with French animation studio Something Big to adapt Enki Bilal's acclaimed sci-fi graphic novel Le Sommé de Monstre. It's also working with George R. R. Martin, author of the Game of Thrones book series on a short film called Night of the Cooters, based on Howard Waldrop's 1987 sci-fi novel. Crowley spoke with Jordan Pinto about working with Martin, future m a plans, and his goal to create a new genre of storytelling with the Trioscope platform.
5: So our business is kind of split into two major components. We have a, uh, an original content division where we are producing our own originals, co-producing... Uh, all of, all of the productions that we make are using our technology um, but you know that's like a, like a standard production company uh, production studio business on the other side we have the licensing business and on the on the production side we offer all kinds of advantages and, um, that the technology affords uh, the, the biggest one being able to sort of deliver scope and scale at a, at a really reduced cost without the reduction of Uh, kind of the full emotionality that you would get with live action Mm -hmm. because our technology sort of blends live-action 3D and 2D into a really nice neat package that kind of gives you the best of all worlds Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's the upside the downside is that it's just very new and a lot of people do not um, understand exactly what that means yet even though there's you know examples that we've been able to put out in the market over the last few years so a long way of saying we are Still, sort of perceived as a niche, yeah. you know, and and um, and so it's an education process to kind of lift people uh, up to sort of, you know, understanding kind of where we are. Mm-hmm. Dicing up the world gives us a chance to sort of sort of give uh, everyone a a way to hedge bets on this kind of content because right. there's no way to comp it, right? Whether yeah. you, you look at a feature film like we just made, Takeover, in the in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a ten and a half million dollar feature. Yeah. Um, Maybe maybe a little more than that before we're done, but nonetheless um, and you know n- or, or maybe a, a better example we be some TV shows that we're working on where you know these are significant you know uh, budgets they would be much bigger bigger if they were traditional live action, but in our case you know let's say a forty million dollar commission that's a that's a big number to to sort of bet on an untested or largely untested globally format uh, so to be able to sort of um, you know, Hedge that bet is is very beneficial to us because we get to, you know, we get to sort of convince people of the of the worthiness of it in each of the territories uh, individually.
1: Yeah. Um, Could you talk a bit about what the tech actually is
5: and as, absolutely. You're, as when
1: you're educating people about it, and maybe for people that don't know about the Trioscope Platform, yeah. maybe you just um, give us that background. On absolutely. How it works.
5: Yeah. So for us, it, the the technology, the, the sort of purpose of the technology is really to unlock all these, uh, all the latent material that seems to never be able to be made because it's too creatively ambitious or too expensive or both, right? The way that we are doing that is we've designed uh, a full end-to-end production system that allows for the blending of 2D, 3D, and live action in a really cohesive, seamless package. Um, it is the, technically what the, so, the what the system is is, but a bunch of know-how and a bunch of software that are coming together for producers and studios to use uh, as a platform in order to en- enable this type of storytelling. Um, at base, it is shooting live actors on a green screen or a blue screen with some very specific kind of you know parameters, but nothing that you know can't. It, it's very easily trainable and then you take that footage into a cg environment which can be built in unreal or houdini or Maya or anywhere you want it uh, you drop that footage into the cg and then our tools treat all of that in a seamless way so they're treating the live action they're treating the cg uh, in a stylized way so what you end up with as i mentioned before is something that has the kind of the emotional resonance that live action has kind of feels like animation although it's really not it's stylized live action um but because you are sort of presenting it to the audience in this figurative lens the production cost is significantly lower for a bunch of reasons the big some of the bigger ones are the fact that you're shooting something that might take place in the most fantastical worlds you know Whatever scope and scale, but you're shooting literally everything uh, in a, on a green screen stage, and yeah. so a fraction of the production time. Right, right. And the same is true on the post side too, right? If you're if you're uh, seeking to achieve a photo reel VFX, that's tremendously expensive and time-consuming. If you're trying to do something that's more figurative or stylized, significantly lower in time. Yeah. Um, uh, as I understand it, the company launched officially in
1: 2019. That's so right. you, aren't, yeah. you aren't quite a new kid on the block anymore. That's but right it's still a relatively new company in the scheme of things. Um, could you talk a bit about some of the maybe some of the landmark projects and or the, the evolution of the company and some of the important kind of spots? Yeah, uh, absolutely uh, on yeah the roadmap.
5: Yeah, so we knew that when we sort of started developing the technology that if we were ever going to sort of build out this this idea that it, that this could be a whole new genre of storytelling that we were going to have to prove it with our own content. So we started developing uh, a very robust, robust slate of uh, mostly kind of you know sort of drama projects. A lot of which were sort of being um, rescued from the sort of live-action space that maybe had gone into turnaround or had just not found a home. Um, A lot of filmmakers coming to us, uh, landmark projects for us. The first big one was called The Liberator. On Netflix has uh, continue to be a very strong title for them, um, and we're very fortunate to have you know gotten that as our first like big coming out party because it really proved that this medium had the ability to tell a very nuanced and very um, dark and in some cases story using something that kind of looks like animation. You know, I think uh, you know, sort of. Asian audiences are going to be much more used to that than mm-hmm. most of the Western world has been uh, with, the, with the use of animation. So, Liberator for sure. Uh, last year, we embarked on what is now turning out to be an, a, an ongoing series of films that we're making with George R. R. Martin, uh, the creator of Game of Thrones. The first one we premiered um, just not too long ago at the LA Shorts Festival. And it's called Night of the Cooters, and it is a Western, kind of a sci-fi Western, based on a Howard Waldrop story. Mm-hmm. That's a really important project for us. Not the least of which is that we're working with George on a series of his passion projects. But uh, but it also marks the moment when our new version of our technology sort of first got into um, got into a project. Mm-hmm. Liberator was made with sort of 1.0, the new stuff like Night of the Cooters is being made with with the second version of the of the toolset, which is significantly more powerful more automated faster less render times a lot of those things and, and it just overall is just a higher performing product so um we're working on the uh, the next and the next projects with george which we're really excited about not quite ready to announce those yet but uh really exciting in the ongoing series of howard walter authored short story based uh, short films so there's there's a sort of George R. R. Martin's, you know, uh, cabinet of curiosities, if you will, sort yeah. of uh, playing out with a series of short films, which they're about thirty minutes long. So I guess you could also just call it a series. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, how
1: did you come to be working with George R. R. Martin? And um, he must like the he must like the platform and the, he does. And the style of animation. Yeah. Like, yeah style, I, I mean... A- stylized live action. Sorry. Not yeah.
5: Animation. Yeah. G- George is obsessed with story, um, and is particularly. I think his biggest objective is to get oh, yeah. as many of the stories that he has written and the stories of many of the, of the respected writers that he admires, uh, get them out into the world. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that he, 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 uh, is what he's really connected with. He loves the format um, and also loves the flexibility, right? It's not as though Treescope is a style. It truly is. Ca- the, the tools are capable of creating any style mm-hmm. that, a, that, that a creator can conceive. Yeah. Um, so when he saw the liberator i think he saw it in its ability to kind of unlock this project uh, which is called night of the cooters that he and vincent d'onofrio had been working on for quite a while mm-hmm. had it had it in development um, but just it's a western and it's a sci-fi western how are they going to make it for a reasonable budget you know sort of is where it hit a roadblock vincent uh, reached out to me we have some mutual friends he reached out to me and said hey we have this project george and i've been working on it It seems to be a, a bit stuck would you guys consider it and you know we read the script and kind of fell in love with it so mm-hmm. he introduced us to george and then we've sort of struck up this you know really fruitful relationship right um, and so just to clarify those those
1: projects weren't based on um a graphic novel or a, um, short stories visually they weren't based on anything visual
5: yeah short stories written by Howard Waldron so George has sort of accumulated the work of a lot of his kind of science fiction writer friends over the years and Howard is kind of the crown jewel of his collection I think he He owns hundreds and hundreds of Howard Wildrup stories. Interesting. Uh, And the the reason I made that that point was the most recent announcement
1: from Trioscope and something big is that you will be uh, um, adapting the French graphic novel, uh, Summer of the Monster. Yes. Um, Yes, we could maybe talk about how it's slightly different um, because obviously the Trioscope platform enables you to take Anything pretty much live action and, and turn it into something that's very stylized. Yes. How does that process change when you already you're kind of working off something that because I've I've seen the one image the, the yes. poster is like very visually arresting from the original graphic novel. So how do you kind of take that and put it into the uh, into the Trioscope platform?
5: Yeah. No. That's a great question. So the, I think the best way to think about Trioscope is that it sits in, truly in the middle of live action and, and animation in terms of um, you know it's kind of stylistic cues, right? So, in the case of Monster, it really is about taking that very distinct graphic style that, you know, Inky Bilal is world famous for and how do we um, be as true as we possibly can to the, to the fit and finish and aesthetic of that look while also bringing more to the table in, the, in you know, in, from a cinematic perspective than a graphic novel can. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there have been many attempts at making graphic novel. I mean, and some very, very successful ones of, of adapting graphic novels into film. Mm-hmm. But they usually have to make this concession that they are going to look very different. You know, you're sort of taking them into the quote-unquote real world. Whereas in our case, we're kind of taking them halfway to that spot mm-hmm. uh, where you're maintaining, literally maintaining the exact or very close to the art style that was, you know, featured in the in the in the graphic novel. So we're very excited about that but what you're bringing from the live-action world to that as I mentioned earlier is you're bringing you're bringing real actors who are performing Mm -hmm. and you get all of that kind of emotional data that if you were doing it all animation you'd be doing uh, you know a sort of a a version of it where you're building characters and trying to uh, infuse them with the emotion that humans already have and that's often what we say is that you know if, if animation's one Achilles heel is that it suffers in certain genres, particularly in sort of nuanced, sophisticated adult drama, mm-hmm. from not being able to kind of deliver the full emotionality of a human being, then mm-hmm. you should just put human beings in it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of what we've you know set out to do.
0: That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.